Coming up on today's show, the World Petroleum Congress is underway in Houston. We'll get a preview. Coal. One year ago, it was a dirty word around the world. We had to get rid of it. Well, guess what? It's come roaring back. And Canada unlocking its vault of maple syrup. Did you know we had a strategic reserve of maple syrup? World Petroleum Congress underway in Houston. Um, Big event. The biggest. And uh, Calgary, I believe, hosting it next year. But this year, we have our Energy Minister, Sonia Savage, in attendance. And we also have the Mayor of Calgary in attendance. Um, And we got a bit of a, you know, uh, a tailwind for Alberta right now. Things going fairly well in the energy industry. So what can we expect out of this global summit, if you will? We're going to chat with Dave Yeager, who is an energy analyst and writer. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Uh, Good morning. This is the biggie, right? World Petroleum Congress, that's the big annual event? Well, it's not annual. Actually, it's uh, the World Petroleum Council was founded in 1933, and it it, uh, represents 65 countries that produce 95% of the oil in the world. They have a conference every four years, which which they sped up to every three. This is the one that was meant to be held held in 2020, that was postponed because of COVID. And then Calgary's in the queue for 2023, and we last hosted this event in the year 2000. But it is, in terms of uh, in terms of you know sitting around talking about oil, it's quite interesting because everybody comes OPEC, non OPEC, even consuming countries. Japan is a member just to see what's going on. So it's uh, as far as uh, except for the travel restrictions, there's some. Not everyone may go with uh, with the latest uh, twist in the COVID saga, but uh, certainly in terms of gatherings to talk about oil and nothing else this is the big dog this is the big one yeah so we've got we've got the energy minister down there she's obviously got to be feeling pretty good about the energy uh outlook the way things are in the province of alberta right now we're seeing things um i mean not record levels or anything but certainly much better than they were even you know a year ago well the uh, rumors of our demise are greatly exaggerated i just refreshed myself on the numbers this morning and uh something like 90 percent in the United States, of course, you have 5% biofuel. So if you go around the world, something like 95% of all transportation fuel, which is gasoline, diesel, bunkers, bunker for big ships and uh, jet fuel, et cetera, still comes from petroleum. And in terms of primary energy, uh, fossil fuels are still about 85% of all primary energy, and oil is the biggest part of that. So whatever the plan, whatever we're supposed to do, uh, nothing material has changed. In the last little while, oil is uh, is still the fuel that powers the world, and uh, Alberta produces lots of it. And you know, we stand reminded yet again that whether we ought to be or not, I have to I have to preface that because uh, because the because of the climate emergency that's been declared in Calgary. But whether we ought to or not, um, Canada is the fifth largest oil oil combined oil and natural gas producing jurisdiction in the world. So we're a big we're a big player, and it's quite appropriate for the Minister of Energy to be there from Alberta. Sure representing the largest contributor, which is our province. Now, you mentioned, you know, and even you were struggling with, you know, the climate emergency, and okay, I mean, is it good? But I, we, we all sort of have that existential discussion with ourselves, but, I mean, there is the reality and there's the aspiration, and I think, you know, with the mayor of Calgary going down there shortly after declaring the climate emergency, the two things don't necessarily... Um, clash. I mean, they can work together, right? You can go down there if you take the proper stance that, okay, we're in a situation where we need to work on a transitional economy, but at the same time, seeing the benefits of what we're doing now, you can do both things at the same time. 
Well, the the industry has has really gotten with the program. Yeah. I mean, political winds are blowing, and decarbonization is a big deal. The election of Joe Biden in the United States has accelerated the attempts to produce fossil fuel uh, more efficiently. There's lots of things that could be done. Just to, before we go past the mayor, this, this, she's there for two reasons. One, she'll be the mayor of the host city right. in 2023. So there's some panache associated with that. Uh, whether anybody, whether she, she can go to this event and sign any more mayors up uh, to join the climate emergency crusade, <laughs> I'd say. I, uh, if she can get a meeting, that would be interesting. The mayor of Houston, certainly, I wouldn't bring that up for her. So um, uh, that's, that dog won't hunt. Uh, but but certainly, can we decarbonize the oil industry? It's just a, it's always been a question of cost. I think the the one area that that hopefully this 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 will get as much coverage as the um, as the UN events does, because the one area everybody says the science is settled. Well, the science is, the science they're talking about there is the science of the science of climate. If you put GHGs into the atmosphere, yeah, yeah. The climate and the weather. The science of energy is is just is is the wild wild west. You can make the most outrageous claims in the world about what you can and cannot do with energy, and and no, it goes unchallenged. So this, hopefully, we'll see what the, what the agenda will include. Obviously, COP will steal the COP26 will be fresh in everybody's yeah. mind. But the the energy transition they're talking about is the, the science is not settled in any way. In fact, the science isn't even discussed. The opportunity to do more with less to decarbonize um, fossil fuels. I mean, in terms of reducing emissions, nothing would have a greater impact sooner than the more efficient production, uh, processing, and consumption of fossil fuels. And hopefully they'll focus on that. I'm sure they will. So will that be Gondek's message? I mean, because as we know, and I'm sure she, you know, people down there and around the world were aware that she declared the climate emergency, which may not amount to anything. Let's be honest. It's been declared in other Canadian cities for a long time without a lot of effect. Um, but it certainly signals a direction. So does she go down there kind of feeling like the skunk in the room or is she, I mean, you know, how, how do you think she approaches this? Uh, I, your listeners will find this hard to believe, but she does not consult me on, uh, <laughs> on uh, what to do, think or say, you know, <laughs> regrettably. Oh, uh, yeah, look, this is a really big deal. And I can assure you that the, the, I, I went through the guest list uh, in preparation for the program. Yeah. And you're going to have the CEOs of the, all the major U.S. companies, Chevron and Exxon and the head of Halliburton and, and the global players. Uh, state oil companies like Repsol are going to be there. And so the idea that that anybody other than her her figurehead role as the mayor of the city that'll be hosting the 2023 event, I really don't think that I, I don't think that that she's going to be a, a major you know, player. On, on, uh, well, she's not going to be on the on the A list for all the all the evening gatherings or speaking engagements. I mean, she can go down, and, and I think that's appropriate. I mean, Calgary is a player. We have hosted the World Petroleum Congress yep. in 2000. We're hosting it again. I think that the mayor should be there. But I think you'll find that she's going to be a lot more talking about uh, about the opportunity that Calgary, Calgary, and Calgary producers have, and on the innovation side that everybody understands now, than than any idea that uh, whatever that wherever that came from. Uh, the, the first her first, first act as mayor was to declare climate yeah, emergency. Yeah. Calgary, I that that was a political IOU, I think, to the people that helped get her elected, and I think we'll, uh, very unlikely that that's going to be of any interest to anyone at this gathering in Houston. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, Dave, thanks so much for your time. i got to run, but I appreciate you joining us this morning. Yeah, good fun. Thanks a lot. Have yeah. a great day. Thanks, Dave. That's Dave Yeager, who is an energy analyst and writer.
We're going to talk about coal here. And this is an interesting discussion because I'm sure, I mean, when you think about a headline with coal that you've heard recently, uh, it's very negative typically, right? It's over and over and over how bad coal is, how we have to get off coal. Well, um, what's the reality here? Because once again, a lot of the things that we talk about don't necessarily line up perfectly with the reality. So we are going to chat now with uh, Eric Rigoli, who is the European Bureau Chief uh, for Global Mail, writing about this. He joins us now. Eric, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Hi. Hey. I'm here. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a good question, Shay. Um, coal is... Um it's come full circle in the last year. Yeah, in only a year. Because I mean, if you think about a year ago, Eric, it was it was the absolute scorn, right? It was the worst thing in in the world. And we're going to talk primarily about investment companies, um, and they were running from coal, at least on the surface. That was the big pressure was to get out of coal, right? Well, yeah, it was all part of the uh, ESG movement, uh, the sustainable investing movement, and. And investors, uh, certainly the enlightened ones, and certainly that would include young people, young investors, they, they did not want investments that, that had a big black component, which was uh, coal um, and oil, to a lesser extent natural gas, but mostly coal. So what they did was they, they forced these companies, I'm talking about the big mining companies, yeah. um, um, for the most part, to spin off or sell their coal assets, and to a large degree, uh, it happened. Rio Tinto did it, uh, got rid of all its coal in 2018. Anglo-American um, did it uh, earlier this year. Glencore said, said uh, we're, not, we're, not, we're not selling our coal, but we're not putting any money into coal development. We're just going to run down our mines to zero. Uh, so that's what happened. And then then it all stopped. Yeah. And if you take a look at where we are now, just one year later, uh, as you say, full circle, things have completely reversed, right? Well, yeah, there's two, maybe three reasons for that. I think I think there's three. The first reason is that when a big mining company sells its coal mines to, you know, whatever, a hedge fund, a smaller mining company... Uh, whatever, the coal still gets produced, yep. it still gets burnt. So it doesn't do the planet any favor. And Larry Fink of BlackRock uh, in New York, the world's biggest asset manager, pointed this out, that when you're selling a coal asset, all you're doing is transferring the ownership. So, like, no one benefits, really. And he said it's even worse because the new company that owns it, uh, if it's private, doesn't have any environmental transparency. So that's that's uh, one of the big problems. Um, a second uh, issue is that investors like coal again because the price has tripled or quadrupled since this pandemic low last year. So the new argument is let's keep the coal and use the cash flow from the coal to finance the green transition. I am a bit cynical about this reason, um, but that's that's what they're saying. And I mean, you know, like you say, you, you can't overlook the fact that there's a reality and there's the aspiration, right, Eric? I mean, you take a look at this and everybody wants to run away from coal because it's so bad. And then the reality comes up and slaps them in the face. And, and you mentioned in the article what the UK has been forced to do in order to keep their power production and things like that. Like, bottom line, it comes down to certain things have to be done and coal can do them, right? Well, yeah, coal is still the cheapest source of um, electrical generation. Uh, you can build a coal plant fast. It's great for peaking power. 
right? You know, it's um, and nuclear coal, nuclear plants aren't peaking power plants. They just they just run steadily. But also, I mean, there's a ge- geopolitical angle, and it's much more relevant to Europe where I live than where you are in Canada. Um, Europe's most of Europe's natural gas comes from Russia. Yeah. Uh, the prices for natural gas are up several hundred percent in the last year. And so, I mean, relying on Russia was a huge geopolitical mistake. I mean, Vladimir Putin is strangling Western Europe. Um, so how do you counter Russian gas? Well, you, you have coal. I mean, uh, it's it, all these, these coal plants in the U.K. and Germany and elsewhere, they're running flat out. Uh, because uh, these countries can't afford Russian gas at the moment, so they they go to Plan B, which is, you know, let's let's fire up our coal plants again. Um, and so so all these countries that said we're going to phase out coal to meet our net zero by 2050 pledges, I, I think that's that's gone. I mean, not gone, but you know, it's gonna it's not going to be they're not going to be finished by. Out of the out of the picture by 2030 or 2050, it could be a decade later. So this reversal, this trend, when we talk about the investors, like you say, that you know a lot of these companies in these countries are going flat out. So are the invest- investors coming back, sort of abandoning this principled stance that they took a year ago and saying, you know what, there's a lot of money to be made here. Well, yeah, Shay, but partly, I mean, what how they're doing, they're sugarcoating it. Is is this? This is what they're saying is, look, we know. We like coal um, because the price has tripled. I mean, it's, it's as I said in my column, it's essentially free money. Why? Because most of these big companies are not putting capital expenditures into coal development anymore. Um, so they're, they're just producing this stuff, and they're producing it three times the price. They're producing it at one-third the price they can sell it. Um, but the investors are going, okay, um, you can have all that essentially free money, but do something with it that's good for the planet. So, Mm -hmm. you know, get into the transition metals, get into cobalt, get into um, lithium, get into all these metals to to finance the the energy transition, the green revolution. Whether that'll actually happen, I don't know. They may just, these big mining companies may just pay it out in dividends. Interesting. So what do you anticipate, like you say, I mean, when you got to do what you got to do. So what do you think the future of coal looks like for Europe? Well, I mean, I'd like to see it dead, but um, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, right? Yeah, it's still the dirtiest fuel. I think it's going to live on until there's a nuclear revival in Europe. You see that France now is going to start building nukes uh the uk is building nukes i think germany germany's a big one is going to have to totally reevaluate its its campaign to get rid of its nukes it's it after after the japanese nuclear disaster i think it was 2011 um germany said we're done on nukes and so what was left coal so i i think this new german government will have to say We'll have to reevaluate the nu- the nuclear phase out in Germany, and I'm going to bet that that they're going to bring back nuclear power so they can get get rid of coal. Right, exactly. You got to come up with something to replace it. Eric, thank you so yeah. much for your time. I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you. Anytime. Bye bye. You bet. That is Eric uh, Reguli, who is the Europe Bureau Chief for Globe and Mail, and he put together the piece. Looking forward to this discussion a lot. I have been for days. I'm not going to lie to you. This fascinates me. 
Um, Canada's maple syrup industry, okay, uh, it's been it's been international news. I mean, not big news. Jimmy Kimmel was talking about it earlier last week, which kind of surprised me. Um, and basically, the situation that we have on our hands right here, right now, is um, we're going to be tapping into our strategic reserve of maple syrup. Our strategic... I didn't even know we had a strategic reserve, but we do. And uh, 22.7 million kilograms of maple syrup will be released from the strategic reserve. Believe it or not, Quebec produces about 73% of all the maple syrup in the world. And there's an international, there's a global, I don't know what you call it. There's a global institute. There's a global research. I mean, basically, this is an international group that's monitoring and regulating the supply of maple syrup. And for good reason. So we're going to get all the details on this now. It's really interesting. We're going to chat with Abby Vandenberg, who's a research associate professor at the University of Vermont Proctor Maple Research Center. Abby, thank you for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really interested in this because, I'll be honest with you, I didn't even realize there was a global strategic maple syrup reserve. I found out now that there is, though. Uh, tell us about how long has it been around? How big is it? What do you know about this strategic reserve? Well, I mean, full caveat, full disclosure here, I'm a tree physiologist, right. so, you know, the business of things is a little outside of my wheelhouse, but, um, yeah, I mean, you're learning about the strategic reserve because it's fulfilling its function, which is fantastic. So it was put into place uh, by the producers of Quebec in the early 2000s, and it was designed to uh, make sure that there was a continuous supply so that as they built markets for maple syrup and continued to grow the industry that they, there would never be a shortage of maple syrup for those markets. Um, and in doing so, would also enable them to guarantee their producers a nice, stable price. Um, so what we're seeing now, like I said, is the Strategic Reserve performing its function. Uh, the last, like uh, many or basically every other agricultural product, you know, not every year is right. a great harvest. And last year's maple syrup harvest was not so great. Um, so they were able to tap into the reserve so that there was no shortage of maple syrup for all of that, all of those markets <laughs> that they've done such a great job of building. Now, Explain to us how this works. I mean, I think we have a we have an understanding that maple syrup comes from maple trees, but what caused the issue? Like, how is it produced, and why um, was the weather? Is it weather that's not ideal? I mean, what what causes a good year versus a bad year? Uh, it generally speaking, it all boils down to weather. Although it does get a little bit more complex than that, but essentially for the sap to be harvested, we have to have fluctuating temperatures above and below the freezing point. Um, so it's, you know, the freezing followed by thawing that allows that sap to be harvested. And in this year in particular, in many areas across the maple-reducing regions of North America, there were not a lot of sap flow days, not a lot of days where we had those freeze fluctuations. Um, and there was also, um, so basically that led to a, a relatively low harvest. And the uh, sap sugar concentration was also a little low in many areas this year. And so that contributed to it as well. But, you know, as you've said, it's not like 
dramatically off, right? It's not like it was a disastrous year, a little bit lower, but we're really not in this position where we've got suddenly a maple syrup shortage around the world. Exactly, and that's in part, I mean, it was a really terrible year for some people, no doubt about it. Um, But uh, because the strategic reserve is there, there isn't anything close to a shortage of uh, of maple syrup. And part of the other contributing factor, too, is that there, you know, the the industry has worked really hard to build new markets for maple syrup because the production of maple syrup has been really growing over the past decade or two. So they've done a great job at building those markets, so there's a big demand. And then after the pandemic hit, there was an even increased demand for maple syrup as people stayed home and cooked at home more. So it was really a a great thing, this huge increase in demand for maple syrup. So combine that with the short season um, in terms of the harvest and, you know, there's the reserve doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah, so it's more an issue of demand and supply being slightly off, not dramatically off, that, that contributed to the situation that we're in now. I would say so, sure. Hey, how how big of an industry is this? I mean, I mean, we all know it exists, and we all know that there's a ready supply of maple syrup, but when we're talking about, like, how many million maple trees are there out there that are part of this industry, do you know? I should know. Um, <laughs> millions and millions of maple trees. And it's all through Quebec, and obviously in Vermont, where you are, and other parts of the U.S. are involved as well, but Quebec is, is sort of the wheelhouse for their production of maple syrup. Right. I mean, like you said, they produce like 73% of the world's maple syrup, and that's why their system, so this is a a Quebec-based system and reserve, it's why it is basically responsible for setting the price and sort of dictating the um, uh, dictating the industry throughout the world because they are producing and responsible for the vast majority of maple syrup. But, you know, the rest of Canada, or not the rest of Canada, but many of the other provinces in Canada are also contributing. You know, Ontario, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia. We have most of the northeastern U.S. and some of the upper Midwest um, as well. Uh, But Quebec and Vermont are really the dominant players. But when you (laughs) Quebec versus uh, Vermont, you know, the the difference is just astronomical in terms of percentage of worldwide production. Very interesting stuff. Abby, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That is Abby Vandenberg, who um, is a research associate professor at the University of of, uh, Vermont and with the Proctor Maple Research Center. And I guess it shouldn't come as a total surprise that there is all kinds of infrastructure around maple syrup, just like any other commodity. But it's really interesting to me when, you know, we have a global strategic maple syrup reserve um, that actually is being tapped into this year. And as we said, okay, here's some here's some details on the maple syrup industry in our country. Um, we're releasing 22.7 million kilograms this year from the reserve in order to make sure that supply doesn't um, get badly outpaced by demand and prices don't spike, which apparently happened a number of years ago in 2008. Apparently, there was two or three years in a row where things weren't good in the maple syrup industry. The weather wasn't good, wasn't a good turnout, good yield, whatever you call it, and things got really, really bad. And we actually emptied the global strategic reserve in like 2008, and we did see prices around the world skyrocket. Had no idea, don't remember it, but apparently it happened. And of course, and a number of you were pointing this out, and I remember hearing this story. There was a heist. There was actually... 
Nearly 3,000 tons of maple syrup were stolen from the Global Strategic Maple Syrup Reserve. This was back in 2012. Um, and uh, somebody's telling me there's actually a Netflix documentary on the maple syrup heist. I haven't seen that, but I might watch it. But uh, yeah, it was an international, you know, high stakes heist of maple syrup from the strategic reserve that happened uh, about 10 years ago. 3,000 kilos of this stuff. And then it was, you know, taken and distributors apparently bought it, not knowing necessarily. I mean, there's, there's a whole background into this, but they call it liquid gold. And now you see why. I, it's treated like that in a lot of circles. It's it's worth a whole lot of money. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.